2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 14 Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth, and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish or stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Amen. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. On the 25th of May 1961, President Kennedy stood before Congress and declared his intention of landing a man on the moon before the decade was out. In September 62, he gave that, that speech at Rice University that you just watched a part of. And then in July 69, Neil Armstrong took this picture of Buzz Aldrin. Words make a difference, don't they? Words can have a profound impact on a nation, Words can have a profound impact on our lives. The words, will you marry me, can change the course of your life. And words can have a more negative impact too, can't they? I think, on the other hand, that it would be a rare person who reaches their teenage years still believing that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Words have tremendous power, whether for good or for ill. And in this section that we're looking at of Paul's letter to Timothy, 
here we find lots of different words. We find empty words, we find good words, we find dangerous words, and we find confident words. So Paul here is shifting from from speaking about how Timothy is meant to conduct himself kind of in the context of a non-Christian world to now thinking about how he should conduct himself in the context of of false teaching uh, within the church, how he's to respond to those who don't speak the truth about God, who speak wrong words. So we're focusing on verses 14 to 19 today, uh, which contrasts good workers with bad workers and good words with bad words. If you're writing down headings, we're going to start with empty words, then good words, dangerous words, and finally confident words. So verse 14, Timothy is to remind God's people not to quarrel about words. See, the church at Ephesus has been infected by a group of people, uh, among whom Hymenaeus and Philetus, verse 17, are presumably the ringleaders. It's been infected by this group of people who like to dispute about words. They like to split hairs, argue over trivialities. And Paul says Timothy should not stoop to their level. Timothy's time, indeed the time of all of God's people, the time is, is far too precious to be caught up with this kind of irrelevant nonsense. For the majority of whatever these people are teaching, we don't really know what it is that they were actually proclaiming, and we shouldn't really care. Timothy is instructed not to engage. Why? Because it is a waste of time. It does not produce anything useful, Paul says. When he says it, it ruins those who listen. It's possible it means he means they're going to believe something incorrect, but at this point, I think it's more that he means it is a waste of their time. It ruins them by wasting their time. There's a big difference, isn't there? A big difference between the kind of words that can launch a space program and the kind of words that never really amount to anything at all. And that's true on a smaller scale as well. If you're not President of the United States, you can pretty much say whatever you like. It's unlikely that you will initiate a decade-long project that costs billions of dollars. Well, there's still that question on that, that smaller scale of our own lives. Still the question, are you speaking words of significance, or are you just wasting time? Are you all bark and no bite? Now, these words are certainly a caution to preachers, certainly a caution to ensure that that we don't get sidetracked into the little details of of meanings of words and find things and miss the big point that's being made. We can't afford to miss the wood for the trees. And sometimes I know I need to to rein in my inclination to to wander off into the obscure musings about Greek and Hebrew words, and sometimes I, I do a better job of that than I do on other times. It's a caution for preachers. But it is not only a caution for preachers, is it? Timothy, Timothy, the leader of this church, Timothy is supposed to remind God's people about these things. That's what Paul says. He's supposed to warn everyone not to quarrel about words. And actually, this is a danger for all of us, isn't it? A danger that we get sidetracked into the little things, the details, the minutiae, and miss the more important. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong to want to understand things correctly. 
I'm always very happy when somebody asks me after the service to to clarify what I meant by something that I said or or, or when somebody wants to to dig more into what something in this passage that we're studying means. That's a good thing. It's good to want to understand. It's particularly good to want to understand God's word. But it's also possible to get sidetracked by that. It's also possible to use that as a smokescreen, to get stuck in picking apart the little details and miss what God is actually trying to say to us. The question is, what do you come away from the Bible thinking about? We should come away from God's word saying, wow, what an amazing God. Not, hmm, what an interesting choice of words. We should finish a sermon saying, I need to say sorry to God for my behaviour this week. Not, hmm, I wonder which of the different names for God we're using here. We should open God's word when we wake in the mornings and close it thinking, How will this change how I treat my children today? How will this affect my interactions with my colleagues later on? should be thinking that, not, well, why did Matthew phrase it this way, but Luke phrases it that way? We might go through that kind of a question to get there, but we need to end up at the bigger point, not quibbling over words, but understanding the intended meaning. If we're quibbling over words, it is of no value and it will ruin us. Some words are empty. Timothy, on the other hand, Timothy should be different. Timothy's words should be good words. Timothy, verse 15 tells us, will be able to present himself to God on the last day as one who is approved as an unashamed workman. He'll be able to present himself that way if his words are good words, if he treats God's word correctly. See, if his opponents are all talk, then Timothy is not to be like that. Timothy is to be a worker. He's to labour at the task that is presented to him. He's to, to look forward to the day when he will stand approved and unashamed. Now, admittedly, Timothy's primary means of working is going to be through words. His task is to teach, is to proclaim God's truth. But his words need to be markedly different words to those of his opponents. This is not to be empty rhetoric. This is not idle chit-chat. These are words of significance, words with an impact. Why is that? Well, because Timothy's words must be words about the word of truth. His responsibility is to handle God's words accurately. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like to handle God's words accurately? I suppose that depends on your role, doesn't it? If you're a Bible translator, then rightly handling the word of truth means means rendering it accurately and intelligibly in your target language so that those who speak that language can know what it says. That's what it looks like to handle the word of truth rightly as a Bible translator. And if you're a preacher, then rightly handling the word of truth has to surely include doing your utmost to make sure that the meaning of the word is plain and the implications of the word are clear. But most of you are in neither of those categories, are you? And yet I suggest that you are not off the hook here. I suggest that each of us is obliged to correctly handle the word of truth in our own context. And correctly handling the word of truth has to mean 
that you've done with it what it's designed for. Or perhaps even better, that you've allowed it to do to you what it's designed for. Now, you haven't correctly handled a meal if you've just sat and looked at it, have you? You also haven't correctly handled the word of truth if you've only heard it. You haven't even correctly handled the word of truth if you've only understood it. No, you and I have only correctly handled the word of truth if we have been changed by it, if we are transformed, if our lives are different tomorrow because of what we read today. If you think Kennedy's words had a big impact, well, wait till you see what an impact God's words can have on this world and on your own life. Timothy must speak good words about the word of truth. Verse 16, Paul returns to the empty words of Timothy's opponents, to what he there in verse 16 characterizes as godless chatter or irreverent babble. But it quickly becomes apparent that their words actually are going beyond being empty. They are dangerous. Verse 16 says that these dangerous people who are kind of characterized, encapsulated by their ringleaders, by Hymenaeus and Philetus. Uh, verse 16 says these dangerous people are making progress, Paul says. So you could imagine a, a spectrum that goes across. And these guys are saying, we're making progress, we're walking along. And Paul says, all right, yeah, you're making progress. But the spectrum that you're moving along is the spectrum of godliness. And the direction you're heading is towards ungodliness. You are becoming less godly, not more godly. There's a danger, isn't there, that we think change is always good. There's a risk that we think as long as it's called progress, it must be a good thing. But Paul is very clear. Progress can be a very, very dangerous thing. Sometimes people talk about being on the right side of history, don't they? Well, coming later in time doesn't always make it better. They are progressing by becoming less and less godly. And in verse 17, the picture, if anything, gets worse. Their teaching spreads like gangrene. It's not only themselves they're harming, but like gangrene, their, their teaching slowly eats away at anything that is healthy, anything that is good. They're poisoning the whole body. Others in the church in Ephesus are being led astray by this dangerous teaching that the resurrection has already taken place, says verse 18. The idea here seems to be a kind of spiritualizing of the idea of resurrection to saying that, that the resurrection exists but only in a kind of inner spiritual life, a, a resurrection that is therefore in the past has already taken place for those who believe. Now, Paul talks in such terms about resurrection elsewhere in his writings. This is, this is a valid kind of resurrection to talk about. But the problem is it can't be the totality. It can't be everything that we believe about resurrection. No, that error has a massive impact on how we view Jesus' own resurrection, and it has a massive impact on the significance of his resurrection for our future standing, our hope for eternity. And that affects 
how we view our current relationship to Jesus. It affects how we behave in this life. It affects how we regard the creation around us. Our understanding of the nature of resurrection has a big impact. If we deny the possibility of resurrection, if we say people just don't come back to life, don't be so stupid, or if we spiritualise away that resurrection into near meaninglessness, it has a big impact. Our attitude to it is of great significance. In fact, Paul views this as so central that to deny the reality of physical resurrection is to destroy the faith of those who follow in such an understanding strikes at the heart of the faith they've departed from the truth well well again the application to teachers and preachers of this warning about dangerous words is clear timothy and those who follow on after timothy they must not speak this kind of teaching that hymenaeus and philetus are teaching and indeed teachers are obliged to warn others against those who similarly depart from the truth the application to others possibly less clear but here's the thing if false teaching is spreading within the congregation if somebody is uh, standing around after church on a sunday morning when we're there in the mawson hall uh, somebody's standing there and and teaching people things that are not true or we're gathering in our, uh, our connect groups on a Wednesday or a Thursday night, and somebody is explaining an understanding of a passage that simply is not what that passage is saying. If somebody is proclaiming something within the congregation that is not true, if that's happening locally, well, then I, as, a, as the minister of the church, have a, a reasonable fighting chance of spotting that happening, of correcting the person in question, and of warning others, and so on and so forth. In that context, I can kind of do what Timothy is being charged to do here. But what about when that false teaching is spreading online? What about when people, especially at the moment, are kind of turning any which way, finding new sources of teaching, maybe because their own congregation hasn't been able to put anything online, or, or because you're looking for more? That's good, but there's a danger, isn't there? Because false teaching that's spreading kind of out there somewhere, incorrect and dangerous understandings that are being proclaimed and are being piped directly into your living room, well, your minister, whether that's me or normally somebody else, your minister can only get so far in warning you about that source of false teaching. Maybe I can warn you about some of the higher profile instances. I can advise you to keep well away from Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar and, and so on and so forth. But there's countless more who I have never heard of and never will. So if there are dangerous words out there, and there are, and I can't warn you against them explicitly, well, then you will need to guard yourself, won't you? You'll have to keep asking yourself as you take anything in. You'll have to keep asking, is this person correctly handling the word of truth? Are they proclaiming something that matches up with what I'm reading here in my Bible myself? Don't listen to somebody talking to you on your TV without your Bible open in front of you. Are they proclaiming truth? Are they correctly handling the word of God? Or are they proclaiming something that is dangerous, that is liable to destroy my faith if 
if I follow after them. Folks, there are empty words, there are good words, and there are dangerous words. And if we stop there at the end of verse 18, then we're ending on a pretty somber note, aren't we? But happily, verse 19 strikes a more upbeat note. In verse 19, we find confident words. Here they are. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Folks, there's tremendous reassurance there in those words, isn't there? There's great confidence to be had here that no matter how successful Hymenaeus and Philetus and their latter-day successors might be, still Timothy can be encouraged. Paul is encouraged. You and I can be encouraged. We can be encouraged because the foundation of the elect cannot be moved. God has built a solid foundation, immovable and firm, considerably more so than this lectern that I don't know why I'm hitting. Paul here is talking about the church as the foundation. The church, established on the, on the bedrock of God's unchanging, predestining, electing love. The church that is governed by the cornerstone who is Christ. The church is an established foundation. Nothing is going to shake her. Because the true church consists of those who belong to Christ. God has placed his seal on this foundation. He knows who are his. Nothing can cause him to doubt his choice. Nothing can make him second-guess himself. Nothing can prompt him to reject those whom he has chosen. Here in verse 19, you've got these, these uh, kind of two seals. And the text of the first is a quotation from Numbers 16, verse 5, which you can go read the account later if you like. Uh, but what's happening there back in the Old Testament, back in Numbers 16, it is kind of a similar situation. A bunch of people there have risen up in rebellion against Moses and have led others astray along with them. But God will not be deceived. God isn't confused about the truth. God doesn't know, doesn't, uh, God isn't uncertain about who's on his side and who isn't. No, God knows those who are his. Jesus said similarly, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. The sad episode from Numbers 16, that episode of Korah's rebellion in the wilderness, it did not devastate the congregation of Israel. And false teaching will not devastate the church at Ephesus. And it will not devastate God's church today. And it need not devastate you. The second seal here is probably a reference to a later verse in number 16. Uh, in verse 26, when the, the means of God identifying those who were his, the means of that identification was to call on them to separate themselves from Korah and his henchmen and their rebellion. God knows those who are his, and those who are his will listen to his voice. They will be obedient to his word. We will turn away from our wickedness. So no matter how many empty words are around us, we can disregard those. We can listen to the good words, 
and turn away from the dangerous words. And all of that because we rest secure knowing these confident words. I pray that the Lord who knows those who are his knows you this morning. Amen.